When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me and says, listen to a podcast, which is what you're doing right now. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we will be discussing the Beatles for the first time ever. Very exciting stuff. And the album we will be choosing uh, that we and um, that Corey chose to discuss was Let It Be, which was their final released album, but not their final recorded one. Yes, yes. And it came off more of a this is the one that I knew the most tea of, you know, we, oh, we yeah. and Charlie and I are both Beatles fans and. I grew up, my family is a huge Beatles family. It was engraved early on, not in a whether you like it or not sense, but it was just part. I mean, even when I was growing up, my parents used to throw big parties like uh, the size of like bull and oyster roasts, but they would call them Beatles parties. And I, I remember making the paper mache yellow submarine centerpieces, but everyone would be dressed as Beatles songs. And that was us with the Beatles, you know. Can they have another one of those? I'd love to go. Talk has been on the streets. We used to do a really monumental Halloween party as well. So we were talking about because once the brothers went all over the U.S., it's sort the party and sort Fair. of died down. But we were talking about maybe getting those two pieces back together into one giant party so i'll let you know i'll let you know because i i was once john lennon for halloween i took a hippie shirt i had and got some glasses and said i was lennon because I, I was in a beatles phase at that point in time in middle school i was lennon oof, 10 years ago 13 years ago <laughs> i think it was me and my wife's first halloween party together <laughs> when my parents were still throwing i have to find those pictures Oh, I, I have to see these. These I have to see. Um, but yeah, if you can't get it, yeah, we are both fans. And I'm not going to lie. I did have a big phase in middle school where I had Beatles rock band and played through the whole game in one night. One of the best rock bands ever. And I'm uh, a rock band aficionado. And the only terrible part, and you might not even know this, but it's not backwards compatible. So you have to have an Xbox 360 to play it these days. So uh, it's one I always want to play. They don't put any of the stuff in the catalog for five. I miss it. But the visuals, the whole nine on that was just such an experience. I'm with yeah. you, though. Day one, cover to cover. Nobody's yeah. stopping. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, my brother accidentally broke part of the drum set for it. Let me guess. The bass pedal? No. no? Part, oh. One of the stick. No, one of the pads, actually. Uh, there you go. There you go. So it, it was an impressive break, not going to lie, but... <laughs> yeah, those were, I probably didn't play the game enough for the amount that my parents spent on it, I'm sure, but it was fun while it lasted, and now we're talking about it today. Yeah, it didn't even come up inside of my memories going through this, but I mean, even the rooftop jam on that, like, oh, that was oh, yeah. such an epic part of this whole, of that whole entire game. I mean, their whole entire career, but th that was such an epic that, part of the game as well. Oh, it really, that was my favorite part of the game. <laughs> so that is part of what made this era so much fun to do. And another big thing that happened in the past couple of years, I would say, I've always been a Beatles fan, but I have to say the, um, the Beatles stand kind of jumped out a bit for me with the release of the Get Back documentary on Disney+. Plus. It really kind of got me more interested in the Fab Four than I'd been in a while. Nerd. Like, I really wasn't looking into them or listening to them as much for a bit, but the documentary really kind of ignited something in me, and I, I did love it. I watched the whole thing, but it's about this era. Oh, yeah. That's all right. it's about. <laughs> 
Peter Jackson bringing me Lord of the Rings and then following up with that beautiful documentary. I got to thank him two times, but it was one. I don't think you were alone in that. That was that really sparked, in my opinion, a whole new generation or a whole new group of people just getting in. And for guys like myself or like my father, you know, I, I keep going back to my family, but that's who I've talked to about the Beatles most in my life. It, we found all types of new stuff. There was type, there was new stuff to talk about, new Beatles stuff to talk about, even though it was stuff inside of what we already knew. It was just, it was such a unique one, a tear jerking one, but a unique one. Yeah. Uh, and my parents aren't as diehard of the Beatles as you are, but that is a lot of how I know about who they are. Like my parents, they had the anthology CD. They had the my mom even had a Paul McCartney biography back in the day that she said was pretty boring, actually, but they were pretty big fans. And one of their favorite stories that I was when they were engaged, seeing him at RFK Stadium. Oh, man. Alone? Oh, or no, wins? They, or... It was a solo tour. He did have Linda with him, though, and they said she sang a song and she was just terrible. <laughs> oh, Linda. We're going to keep it light on you, as light as we can tonight. Linda. I mean, she's not on this album, so we can't really give her too much flack. We, we really can't. She's not the more controversial woman in Beatles lore, as we know. She is to some, but she's not number one of them. Um, but Not in, not at all. Not even close. Yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that lady a bit, but... um. Yeah, anyway, this is a really, uh, yeah, this was a really fun one to dive into because there's just so much to get into um, with the Beatles. They're the biggest band ever. So much has been written and recorded and talked about about regarding this group before. And it's just always an interesting discussion. And I think that we uh, hopefully have set the stage for you to bring a somewhat new perspective, hopefully, to these same old events that you may have already heard about, but hopefully we could shed some new light because somehow they always find new ways. And I, uh, they're just such fascinating figures that I can't get enough of it. I can't. I, I agree. I think the only one thing for anybody who might not know, or even if you think, you know, something that always rings true is to really remember when this happened because we got it at the end but this happened before abbey road so it's something to really think about as we go through this album yes and uh with that being said let's go back to the late 60s now get back to the late 60s i guess yeah. you could say i like it um so there's a couple different basically either way you slice it the origins of this project began in 1968 and there have been kind of two explanations offered for it one was kind of well documented in the 33 and a third book on let it be which is that uh in 1968 the beatles um they filmed a promo video for this new song that they recorded. It was some song called Hey Jude. I'd never heard of it until this week. <laughs> but they filmed the video for it. And um, obviously, uh, yeah, I didn't. A few people heard the song and liked it, you know. Yeah, it's a few. Just a few. Just a few. But uh, the Beatles actually kind of liked doing the video because it was a live performance kind of thing it wasn't completely but semi-live at least and kind of reinvigorated something in them about their earlier days because they had stopped touring in 1966 they didn't really enjoy doing it and the way that they were 
doing stuff in the studio made their new songs hard to play live on stage. Yeah. And because of that, it just didn't make sense to go on tour and still play the same songs over and over again because they wanted to do this new exciting stuff they were doing. And that trend only continued, certainly, with the work they did in 1967, Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour. But in 1968, they were working on the White Album, and that one, actually, it's also been said this was the genesis of it, because that album was so ornate, it has 30 songs on it, and some of them have certainly been played live over the years in solo performances. I mean, I can already think of a couple White Album songs off the top of my head that I heard live when I saw Paul, but overall, it didn't really... Just it wasn't conducive to a live performance. So it was decided, I think, according to most by Paul, the band needs to get back to basics and into what they started doing, which was this early rock and roll stuff. Very 50s influence, but an evolution on it, of course, before they got into the deep experimentation that really cemented their legacy. But they wanted to go back to that old sound and also the... Band was definitely having a lot of conflict during the sessions for the White Album. It's often actually said that the White Album isn't really even a band album as much as it is three different solo albums because we have John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison all bringing completely different songs to the table. Lennon and McCartney weren't really writing together at this point in time anymore. Yeah, in a smaller, I'll use the word sadder sense, it could almost be said of this album as well as far as so many individual thoughts inside of a group that we always or i won't use the word we that i always thought was such a wild synergy of music and friendship and just hunky-dory all the way through you know of course the people that lived through it didn't see it like that but i'm talking as a young nine ten year old child listening hardcore to a full almost a full discography you know you always felt that it was a always a group movement, you know? Yes, and uh, certainly at least someone in the band wanted it to get back to that. I keep saying that over and over again, intentionally or not, but... No, heard. That's um, what happens, and there were plans, various different plans, various different accounts of, like, they were going to do a TV special or a film or whatnot or something like of a live concert somehow was this plan but they were going to record new material for it and so in january of 1969 these dates are so well documented it's amazing i wish every artist of this era had dates that were this well documented i heard that we were just talking about that but that's real it's insane i mean yeah i didn't get this on the share podcast looking at those 60 album 60s albums they didn't care about the dates but the beatles they kept track and well i'm grateful for it i just wish everyone would have done it but anyway they were doing these sessions and they were filmed by michael Lindsay hogg who it was agreed would be directing this tv special which would focus on the making of their album and some of the songs on it. And interestingly, January was the only time they could do it because of other commitments these guys had. You can feel it so much more, in my opinion, in the the Disney Plus documentary of like how 
under the gun they were, how unvibing they were, but more so how quickly it had to be done. And it wasn't something that looked like any of them really enjoyed it being under the gun like that, you know? Yeah, but it is interesting that the Get Back documentary also kind of rewrote the sessions because it did show some of the good times had as well. Like it wasn't all bitterness because at the end of the day these guys were friends just so much else had gotten in the way when it came to relationships and business and that'll always drive a wedge they were getting older and they had also really embraced a psychedelic look into themselves um as a band and really by by this point john and and, uh yoko were i hate even saying it out of my mouth but they were hard in the heroin you know uh, so there was, there's a lot of back and forth. I, it's so great to see those happy moments because knowing everything, watching that, it's heartbreaking sometimes to see them interact during that. But then life is life. You know, we all grow and change throughout. And even in your closest friendships, you, you'll find, or I've found that throughout my life. Um, I could only imagine making music for that many years with the same four brothers and it not going like that at least at some point throughout yeah and the heroin it is unfortunately it's a very important aspect of it because of this heroin lennon was not quite as productive as he had been in the past so i think because of that mccartney felt the need to really take over the reins but he was also admittedly going on a power trip and This led to George Harrison temporarily quitting the band during these sessions. And they'd done what they could, long story short, and they put together a rough mix of it produced by Glenn Johns, who admittedly, he'd worked with a bunch of people, but was still starstruck to be working with the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, a lot of it's been made that the sessions really didn't sound good. And I mean, I don't, the Glenn Johns mixes have actually been released officially. You can listen to them on streaming. I don't think it's quite as unsalvageable as it's been stated because it's still the Beatles we're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I can see where you're going there. But in the sense of a lot of those tracks really only having mono recordings, like, you that, know, yeah. that that's so tough. That's so tough. Of course, we're going to get all over that. But it really is, you know, it, it was... I mean, for half of it, they were in a soundstage, right? Yeah. Or, I, I, or, or just a TV studio. Um, and then the other half, they went home. It's tough. It's tough. But no, you're right. It's always going to be Beatles. I mean, even some of the uh, criticism to this album is like, it's still Beatles. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's still epic. There's epicness in it, but there's there's some different feelings. And that is is one of the big things that led to these musical feelings, I think, is just... There's way too many hands in this pot. Uh, yes, there are. But at the point in the story that we're, we're not even at the too many hands yet, because yeah. the plan was probably around May, they were thinking they'd release an album. A cover was shot for it to be called Get Back, and the photo was an update of the Please Please Me cover. It ended up being used for a compilation later on. That's iconic, too, the Blue Album. Oh, yeah. Also iconic, and I have it. <laughs> but... Uh, that they ended up shelving it and the Beatles ended up, long story short, making Abbey Road, which, okay, that was released first for many reasons because it's Abbey Road. What else do we have to say about it? 
Of course. Well, until we maybe cover it on this podcast. Who knows? <laughs> but <laughs> back to Love It Be. Anyway, Abbey Road came out and the Beatles, it wasn't Beatlemania by this point, but undoubtedly this was still the biggest band. They were still making huge hit records, topping the charts, selling tons of albums, and still a force to be recognized reckoned with at least as hit makers at the very least. Most definitely. But end of the year, the Beatles went back to Glenn Johns and still wanted him to compile an album. And uh, they ended up adding some other songs, but it didn't quite end up happening that way. The band wasn't too thrilled with all these recordings, and they had a newish manager at this time named Alan Klein. He had a different way of doing business than the Beatles were used to being from New York. He was pretty aggressive, and uh, he pissed a lot of people off, to put it lightly. He fired a lot of people at Apple Corporation, but most of the band went with him. But uh, Mr. McCartney was not a fan. He wanted his father-in-law, Lee Eastman, to represent the band. And obviously the rest of the band didn't like that. And I can totally understand why. Because, yeah, if that's your son-in-law, you're probably going to take his side on things. Yeah. Without the connection to the father-in-law, for me, this is the point where Paul started to feel like he couldn't raise his own baby, so to speak. You know, it was... It was other hands that weren't close. I mean, everything else had been the same for a million years coming up to this. So it was a, for me, it's the point where Paul starts to be wary. I'll say it of this American uh, management, but also just of the whole situation going down. Yes. And his bandmates were pretty frustrated with him, but I think history has, to put it lightly, put Paul in a better light just because we, I mean, Alan Klein ended up being involved in a lot of lawsuits with former clients. He even went to jail at one point. Maka, on the other hand, went to jail for having weed in Japan. I think the tax <laughs> issue is a bit more serious. Yeah. I also think it lends to McCartney's overbearingness in the sessions for this album. I really do. I, I think that he yeah. was worried that it was getting away from them and he wanted to make sure he still had somewhat of the reins on this yeah well uh so the story kind of ends how this album ended up um john lennon and george harrison invited phil Spector to produce the final mix of the album now phil Spector is a legendary producer but he'd uh, gone into retirement for a bit his sound had fallen out of vogue and uh he was not in his best state of mind. Uh, I'm glad you to, said it. Uh, to put it lightly, <laughs> lots of drugs, lots of manic behavior. But he did things as he could in his trademark sound. And uh, Paul McCartney was not happy with some of it. We'll get into that when we get to the particular song, of course. But the album went out with the Spectre arrangements in May of 1970, and naturally, the album still sold well. It wasn't as big as Abbey Road. It still topped the charts worldwide because it's the Beatles. Obviously, it's going to do that. But over time, this is a controversial album. A lot of people really debate its merits often. Um, A lot of people say this is the worst Beatles album. Which is very tough to say, and we go back to the old it's the Beatles, you know, there's something in it regardless. Um, 
and and without touching any of the individual band members feelings on the specter rewrites or additions or or the way he produced these tracks i think we also have to say that everybody was sort of in this limbo so much that the only person on hand during Spectre bringing in orchestras and, and doing Wall of Sound was Ringo. And he was just playing for the session players, you know? So that's another thing to think about, man. Like, I love you, Ringo, but of all people, Ringo was the only one in the studio with Phil Spectre. And it got so crazy that that uh, players were leaving and Ringo... Well, uh, he is a man of peace and love, but Ringo had to bring Spectre around and then call the the players and be like, please come back. <laughs> We're going to yeah. make it through this, you know? And I think that is the biggest, the biggest error of all. The Beatles did not go with their normal producer, George Martin. Yep. He ended up returning for Abbey Road. He had some involvement with this, but I think that just was the issue. I mean, Spectre and Klein just called him an arranger. They didn't respect Mr. Martin at all, but that was not a correct assessment. I think you hear it in the sound. His yeah. touch is missing. And, and that's the thing. So it's it's a member of the band, in my opinion. I mean, he's been with them for the whole way through. And then without going too much in the album, we just get different sounds. You know, we get sounds that some of the band felt that would never be on their albums, period. And we get sounds that... I think the listeners, especially at that time, which I stress trying to put yourself in the mindset of a listener and a Beatle fanatic at this point, but sounds that listeners at that time, fans at that time were like, what, what, wait, what is going on here? So yeah, I, I tried to do that a lot through this, so, through these listens, you know? I, I will say this. So it also, weeks before this album was released, there was a bit of conflict over its release because, um, all of them were working on their own projects, and Paul McCartney made a homemade solo album simply called McCartney, and it actually was released a bit before this, and its release date did cause some pretty big conflict, but in a press kit for this album, Paul McCartney revealed that the Beatles had broken up, and there had been hints of this before, but this was when it actually became news, and it sent shockwaves to a lot of people, and I think almost immediately, people... Like, I, that had to immediately color the perception of this album for so many listeners, because immediately it was, oh, this is it, because it was released after they broke up. I think people hear it as the sound of a band disintegrating. Of course, later on, most of us learned that this actually wasn't the final music they recorded together. It was actually Abbey Road. Yep. But people heard it a different way. And... Uh, some of that's been corrected, but some people still stand by that rightly or wrongly. Agreed, but I'm I'm so glad you touched on it because I, I had alluded to it earlier, but everybody, oh, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people, like you said, immediately put this to, oh, yep, look, you can hear them breaking up in the tracks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They might have been on their way, but it, it's not chronologically there like you think it is. No, it's not. And so we have this polarizing album. And um, by the end of the year, every band member had released at least one solo album. And uh, when it came time for the Grammys, this album won an award for it being a soundtrack to the documentary Let It Be. And Paul McCartney was the only Beatle there. And 
also, it must be noted that, yeah, there was a documentary released to theaters called Let It Be. Uh, good luck watching it. It's been pretty much scrubbed from existence. They've made it very hard to watch, I think, because it was edited to be so unpleasant. And I think Get Back was made in part to rectify that because I know McCartney was an executive producer on Get Back. And I believe Ringo was too. So they were kind of... I guess, changing that perception a bit as much as they could. And Jackson as well. When he found that trove of footage, I feel like that was his main goal, is to really say, all right, this wasn't as much of a cluster as you thought it was. These boys were still rocking and rolling. Yeah, Here's everything I got. (laughs) It's such raw footage. It's still funny, because even just hearing people talking about the documentary, Everybody has a different interpretation of how the band members behaved. Heard. Like, just like I heard some people would say, I thought Paul was so great trying to keep the band together. Other people, I thought Paul was so full of it. Like, everybody has a different take on it. And uh, that's just what makes these dynamics so interesting. What's your take of Paul? I mean, overall, I would say I'm team Paul on it. He is my favorite Beatle. He's written most of my favorite songs of the Beatles. So I am biased in that regard, but putting myself in his shoes, I would be really frustrating, frustrated if my main musical partner was using heroin with his new wife yeah. Yeah. and being unproductive. I would kind of think, okay, I need to step it up. And I think musically he did step it up. He wrote some great material at this point in time. The issue was that I do think Overall, I definitely don't agree with how George Harrison was treated. He was definitely given the shaft in way too many ways and should have been allowed to contribute more. And I think that's a big issue, especially since he had really come into his own as a writer at this point. This was not the beginning of the band. These guys had evolved and he was really coming into his own and writing so much at this point in time. And it's kind of crazy to think of some of the songs that were considered not up to snuff for this. I, I think we're on the same page or very close as, as to how we feel putting ourselves in McCartney's shoes. I would have to say as a musician, as as a leader, period, I couldn't imagine sitting there with that much frustration. I would think I would have from Lennon showing up late. The Harrison thing for me. I don't think McCartney even realized the severity of the not overshadowing, but just not listening. Uh, You know, it's been documented so I can talk about it like it's it's reality because it was. But them just not listening to him. I think George said it would take 10 of their tracks for me to get one in. But also losing George while you're doing this, even if you don't realize it, still had to have an impact there. I got to give Paul props on this for keeping it somewhat together because I feel like, I mean, even the bugged session, you know, where you don't see everything, but you hear what they're saying, even with that aside, it's just kudos to you, man, because I feel like I would have been losing my mind in that, in those sessions. Yes. And in fairness, they were more, uh, to put it nicely, they were more accommodating of George once he returned because they wanted to make sure, but let's not get him to leave again. Oh, I, that's why I go back to that little, or I say that little brother syndrome is because the little brother screaming like, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
And it's not until he walks out that door that you you take a quick snapshot of what's going on and realize that one of your brothers walked out. Woo! I'm not going to cry through this fucking podcast tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but legitimately, you know, you don't know yeah. what you have until it leaves, especially, and we're, we're going to say it over and over and over again, but no matter what, they're still the Beatles. No matter what, they're still brothers, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and overall, I, I think... um this is a whole hot tea take. I'm going to get into this. I think John Lennon in many ways is romanticized and I'm not going to take anything away from his musicianship and songwriting, but the reality is he was a man and the flawed man, and he did make a lot of poor decisions. And I mean, a lot of that's shown in just, they want to blame Yoko for breaking up the band. And that's been disputed over time because you really can't put it all on one person. And I would have also been agitated if somebody had to bring their partner there every single time. I think it's pretty ridiculous how codependent the relationship was, but yeah, but he, he was capable of making his own decisions. Exactly. And her aside, I'm, I'm going to keep going back to this brotherhood because it's it's true to me inside of it. But John Lennon, in my opinion, and, and you can quote me on this, is a self-fulfilled black sheep he made choices on purpose to distance himself because and again and i'm i'm saying all this my opinion but he made these decisions to distance himself because of these these self-confidence issues we talked a little bit about it on bowie when he was talking about across the universe and we learned a little bit more of that throughout this but just the way he always sort of dissed on his own music and his ability and it just hurts, man. It hurts. I, I, I showed, I showed a little bit of that when and I went off on a tangent about the lost weekend era of his life, but it's like, it's all on him, man. You know, and he chooses every which way Yoko got, don't get me wrong. Yoko's in there and the additions are so outside of the music that I, I probably won't talk about a lot of the Yoko stuff tonight, but it's not important to yeah. what's on the album. But I would what, agree. What What is important is, is the way John handles himself inside of this Beatles recording session. And it's very, very off-putting from what you see and read I, I I will narrate this like I'm there because we've had, uh, as Charlie's uh, said earlier in this podcast, we have so much a bounty of information uh, when we do the Beatles, you know, so this is all based on factual stuff. You know, we're not we're not over here really just assuming on, on most of this, you know. Oh, no, not at all, because just so much out there, so many books, documentaries, it's nonstop. Uh, it's a well that you can get into forever. The Beatles. Before we started tonight's podcast, we laughed because, <laughs> as we said earlier, the dates are so point, you know, spot on, and we get so many dates. But it's like oh, everybody's feelings are the ones where you got to read over and over again how who went and try to really put the story together for yourself. That's that's the yeah. the wild part on this. Uh, yeah, and uh, it is also fortunate, I will say, the fact that it's been consistently published throughout the years, these accounts. It is helpful that so much of it was documented because some of the major players are gone now. Heard. But we've gotten all of their thoughts so well documented that we can't really take them out of context. And some of them are still living and adding to the story when they can. So 
it's just it's just never ending, but it is there. That is Damn. for sure. And it's so funny. One of the books that I read um, for this podcast, it was a book called Fire and Rain by a guy named David Brown. He's a Rolling Stone writer. I highly recommend it. It's not just about the Beatles. It's about the year of 1970 and a few key albums, one of which was Let It Be. And it was mentioned that people couldn't imagine a world without the Beatles. And that's why the breakup felt so monumental. But the fact of the matter is we've never lived in a world without the Beatles. Agreed. We never have. And we never will, frankly. <laughs> never, never will. I don't see that ever happening. So with that being said, let's get into the album, actually, because we've been <laughs> rambling for a while. But there's a lot to get into. This is important stuff. That it is. That it is. It actually isn't filler. This is boy importante. <laughs> so the album begins with a song called Two of Us, which is an acoustic based opener that still has a pretty big hook courtesy of Paul McCartney, because that's what he does. He's Paul McCartney. And it was originally titled On Our Way Home. Um, a lot of people thought he wrote this about his strained relationship with John Lennon. But it seems like it actually was about his wife, Linda, which would make a bit more sense, frankly, because she really kind of taught him to escape and just go into it and not worry about a thing. Um, I mean, I think this is a really strong opener. I think it's an interesting choice to open with such an acoustic song. I would think that we would have wanted to open with one of the rockers on the album. But does fine. I don't think I would have chosen it as the opening track, but it doesn't fail as the opening track either. No, it doesn't. It has a nice tempo and, and it gets moving. I always thought this was a love song growing up. Um, <laughs> it really wasn't until going through this week and, and really seeing the little not homages, but the little pieces where people were like, oh, that's about that's about John chasing paper. And, and then I started to to imagine it being about John and Maybe it could have fit, but it looks from what we we can find documented, it looks to be um, about Linda, even though and then we'll probably say this or I'll probably say this a bunch of times. You know, they were always big on you interpret it. They never really laid that stuff down. There was a documentary back in the day. Oh, I think it was the one about John Lennon and Yoko's. Um, apartment weekend you know the that whole thing but long story short um they're at lennon's house and a fan makes his way onto the premise and i'll say he's clearly under the influence of psychedelics or in in a very weird mind space but he tells lennon that you wrote so-and-so song for me and unfortunately lennon let, lets him into a reality piece like no no we didn't you know and that was that was the reason I go to that is that was something that they didn't necessarily do all the time. They they were known to be like, hey, you guys interpret that whichever way you want it. Yeah, and a lot of songwriters do that. Like, That's even fair. today, Taylor Swift does that. Like, she's yep. not going to say who the song's about. And, heck, it could be about both of them. Who knows? I think that's smart. I Every oh, once in a while, I'll brilliant. talk about... Yeah, I'll talk about being a wrestling fan, but that's like that the kayfabe, you know, that that mystery behind the whole thing. What's real and what's not that adds to the mystique of any artist that's wise enough to use that route. Yeah, and that's part of what's kept the Beatles so popular after all these years, for sure. 
Yeah, I think the reason this was picked, or the only thing that I can come up with, um, the reason that this led this album was to aid acoustic. You're saying the acoustic jam of it or the acousticness of it was to aid into this session like recording that they that everybody knew it was because of the uh, documentary and whatnot. Uh, I think that's why this one leads off. It's a strong lead. It's not necessarily a rocker, um, which you would expect it, but you're right. It, it doesn't fail. It doesn't, it doesn't set us sailing very hard, but it doesn't fail. No, it's not like a major jump and it's not a jagged lesson. And, uh, with that being said, I think we should go on to our next song, which is more of a rocker. This is a more of a Lennon composition. This one is Dig a Pony. And um, this one, he literally admitted that he just made the lyrics up to this as he went along, which, okay, sounds about right. But <clears throat> um, it, it really, to me, is more about the sound than the lyrics. In this case, it's very... I mean, the riffs are funky and killer on this one. Absolutely. That's my favorite part of it. And I really like Lennon's vocal on it, too. He's really feeling it, and he's singing it as soulfully as he can. Like, you really feel him when he's going, Oh, it's you. Oh, yeah. Like, you're really feeling it. Um, This is one of the divisive tunes on the album. Some people will say this is one of the worst Beatles songs. I wouldn't agree with that. I've always enjoyed it. And Lennon himself called it garbage in 1980, but he said that about a lot of things. And I would take his assessments with a grain of salt. Yeah, that goes back to what I was talking about, him hating on himself and yeah. how much of that self-hate came out into the media. Um, I was I wanted to hear how you felt about this one because it's, it is such a divisive one. And I, I think even some of the hardcore fans find it super uh divisive i've always loved the way this jammed um lennon had been cited as saying that he really loved this one because of the in sync lead uh part in this and i think it's so beautiful that funkiness that strolls through um the unison of the band period whether it be the that lead part together or everybody in on it and we get to hear our boy billy preston rock and roll for the first time on this album which is is a nice awesome addition to to any any Beatles song in my opinion um but yeah this is uh this is one that has stood the test of times I think this one got a really big launch from the Disney plus document or the Peter Jackson documentary um but one of my beloved tunes of all times critically on this album I can't find any flaws inside of the composition of this one I just I love it it screams Beatles it screams Lennon to me um soulfulness harmonies everything's there for me on this one yeah for sure i mean yeah they really rocked it when they did it on top of the roof for their rooftop performance you know it which uh i'm gonna just assume you all know about that it's iconic and legendary and yet they performed on top of a roof and it was pretty fucking awesome but there's a we only have so much time we don't want to ramble on too much (laughs) That's a good episode right there. Just rooftop. It it could be. It might have to be. (laughs) It might have to be a bonus episode for sure. There you go. But uh, anyway, 
we're going to move on to one of the last songs added to the album that was not in the rooftop performance. This one is Across the Universe. We talked about David Bowie's version of it, but this one actually um, dates back a bit. It dates back to like 1967, 1968. It has a couple of different inspirations, one being India and transcendental meditation because the Beatles going to India was a profound influence on all of them, most especially George Harrison. But it played a part on all of them, and it's that is definitely shown in this song. But he also, John Lennon said he wrote the song after arguing with his first wife, Cynthia, and he couldn't sleep. So he wrote a song. He had some images in his mind, long story short, and um, wrote this song. And he, in a nice way, he actually said this about it. He said, quote, it's one of the best lyrics I've written. In fact, it could be the best. It's good poetry or whatever you call it without chewing it. See, the ones I like are the ones that stand as words without melody. They don't have to have any melody like a poem. You can read them, which he's correct in that case. I do think this reads like a poem. Unfortunately, he didn't like how it was recorded, but he's he gave pretty contradictory statements about how he felt about the recording of this album, frankly. Too, so I really don't know what to believe with how he felt about that, but he disliked it enough to have David Bowie record it and have him play on it. And honestly, there was no need for it because this is perfect as it is. It's a beautiful song. And part of his issue with it was he said that on this, um, Paul ruined the song and the guitars and his voice are out of tune. But it works for this song, though, I think. There's there's so much back and forth with his own self inside of his critique for this song. You said it perfectly. It's like, where are you coming from on this, Johnny Boy? Because, one, you picked Spectre. Two, Spectre slowed it down. I believe it's a quarter, or he slowed it down. I think it's a quarter step slower than, it, than it's recorded. So you get that a little bit of out of tune if you know exactly where it was you all got a chance and this is this i have a beef with all of them on this one because paul does this throughout the album too i'm not saying it was the best chance but you guys all got a copy of this from specter before it went out and you might have had a small window but you had a you had a window to say no well and you know no go on go on uh, Paul allegedly did say no and was ignored. Uh, was he? Uh, yeah, and that's another back and forth, you know? It is. Um, I, I think he was, I believe that he was ignored. I do. Heard, heard. As far as Lennon talking about this as poetry, 100%, 100%. And, and it's always sang, it's always been one of my favorites. After the Bowie, after the stuff that we learned or that I learned doing the research on the Bowie version of this, it's so wild to think that John was really being like, yeah, this is, I said this on that podcast, but this was the realized version of this song. Because even on the Let It Be Naked, which was a release later on with a lot of the the Spectre stuff taken out, and there's still a psychedelic feel to the end of this song, and it works. Um, but but even even that one being recorded 
or, or I'm sorry, being remastered. There's there's just no way, John, that you can tell me that that Bowie version was was what you thought this was going to be. It's very frustrating. This one. I love this song so much. This song has a lot of sentimental value to me. But as a musician, it always seemed like a, a masterpiece growing up and listening to it. Um, so it, it, it's so wild to hear the back and forth on this one. It, it, just touching on that, we it's so easy to just rap on the Beatles and, and the thought process, but this is a classic. Um, yeah. As far as where it is on the album, I think it works out in the third spot uh, right after Dig a Pony especially to where we're going from it um i've always loved this one you know and this is one of those songs that's so good that it feels like a seven minute song to me and then when i look it's really only a four minute song uh if that makes any sense it's just that beautiful and transcendent maybe if lennon were still living he would have been happy with the 2021 mix of the album Uh, hot hot tea take god uh this is hot tea take I dream that there it would be a place where I could see Lennon get sober and get old and hear what he had to say about his career. Because I know I talk about this a lot, but like, I just really hate, I hate the way he hates himself throughout, like from here almost to the end of his life. If that, if you know, I, but- Corey, that's what makes him so cool to everybody. Don't don't you dare Kurt Cobain him. Don't you dare because I'm sorry. <laughs> He's I like him much better than Kurt Cobain, but I'm sorry. I think that's a big part of it because it's just and you no, know, the people have put John Lennon on the pedestal, admittedly. They have. They they have. have. And part of it is because of his untimely murder. So I'm not gonna Kurt Cobain him. No, I, I joke but with the, you, but that's people a valid that. point. The people yeah. did that. The people took it as, oh, well, that's why he's cool and Paul isn't. It's a valid point. Yeah, I, I joke on you, but that's a really well-made point. But there. anyway, enough about Lennon for now. We're going to move on to our quiet beetle now, Mr. Harrison, um, and track number four, I Me Mine. And uh, this one, it's about how people are too self-centered and it uses some uh, Hindu philosophy to make that point. And it also comments on how unhappy he was in the group. And one good thing that Spectre did was actually extend this song by like a minute. That was a good thing he did because initially it was like a minute and a half. And that makes it feel a bit more like an interlude. I will say the extension does make it feel like more of an actual song and um i like the concept of this song and as i said harrison was really he was on fire in this era with his writing i don't dislike this song i don't think it's i mean i think part of it is they didn't always pay attention to the actual better songs because i'm just kind of shocked it's like of all the ones he presented to you this is what you chose yeah, I, I always wonder if this is what he chose because it really did. It summed up the moment. It summed up him. It summed up what he believed in. And then, it, like you said, it summed up where he stood as far as if I'm coming back, I'm going to do this one. Well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come back through and I'm going to do this one. Uh, I Growing up, I always thought this was like a, uh, not a throwaway song, but it always felt like a funny haha song knowing and growing with it and and really just 
looking at the egoism um, commentary throughout it, and then looking at how it's composed of this sad, drawn out, I mean, mine, I mean, mine, and then into this hustle and bustle of what egoism could sound like. I always love that in a composition standpoint, or I've I've grown to love that in a composition standpoint uh, where this song goes. I really do enjoy this song a lot more than I did as a young man. No, it's grown on me over time. I will give it that, but it, it's it doesn't quite stack up with some of the better songs on this album, though, in my opinion. I don't like it as much as any of the songs that just preceded it. I will say that. I agree there. I agree there. In a halfway through the first side, um, it also sort of, with that being said, falters as far as its impact goes. If it has any more impact to make than what it did. And I'm totally with you on the Spectre stuff. Um, I think Spectre aided this song in many different yeah. ways. You know, If there was any song that he helped on, it was this one. So yeah. I'll give him credit for that. But uh, meanwhile, speaking of joke songs, we have an actual joke song for our next track, which is Dig It. And really, it's an interlude that's an excerpt of a much longer jam session. Um, I mean, to me, I feel like this song provides atmosphere to kind of give that raw feeling. That's really the best I can say. That's really all I can say about it and how it adds to the album as a song. It's, uh, it's less than a minute long. It's not a song. It's an interlude. And... I mean, it works as a palate cleanser for what we're about to hear. I will, I do think it works in that regard. But other than that, it's 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 a less than a minute long kind of joke. Yeah, I, part of a little jam session. If anything, it adds an, an even more, it adds more atmosphere to us. I feel like critically going back and, and trying to piece together what it might have felt like or put ourselves in these shoes because this is going back to old Beatles, you know? This is going back to old John and Paul growing up, English, funny, fun stuff, you know, even to the Georgie Wood little excerpt at the end uh, who was like a vaudevillian type of young-looking guy back in those days. Um, and and that... that it was that tongue-in-cheek playfulness that Leonard exuded throughout this process, and I'm glad that that made the album. Um, just, you know, hearing him be, even though it's, I believe it's tongue-in-cheek, almost like, ah, look at what we're doing, making fun of it like it's a little vaudevillian show. It still gives you, like you said, that atmosphere that that is a very cool piece. Yeah. And uh, it does transition us and provide a bit of a palate cleanser for our next song, which is the album's title track, Let It Be. You might have heard of it. Um, so this song, uh, Paul McCartney got the idea of this song when he had a dream that he saw his mother, Marion. He lost his mother when he was 14. And a lot of people saw this as possibly being religious. And he even said, you can interpret it however you want. Yep. <laughs> but he wrote it about his mother. Let's just put that out there now. And um, he first wrote it during the sessions for the White Album. And uh, he brought it to the sessions for Get Back. And it was sat on for a bit. And um, But when it came time for album release, it was released a bit before the album was as a single. And interestingly, so 
there's two versions of it that we kind of hear. The single version is not what we hear on the album. Um, the single version was produced by George Martin, the go-to Beatles producer. And on the album, it's done by Phil Spector. And a lot of the same key elements are still there. Like we still have Billy Preston on the organ, which is so important to this. That's what takes you to church on it. Um, the biggest difference is the two different guitar solos. The one we hear on the album is a lot more aggressive. Um, but a lot of people heard the single version first, and that worked out just fine for them. This was a huge, huge hit. It topped the charts throughout the world. Interestingly, it was blocked in the UK by another somewhat religious song, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Um, but it topped the charts in the U.S. and many other places. And uh, I mean, this is one of those songs where I just think it's a perfect song. I don't yeah. really know what else to say about it beyond that. It's heartfelt and it's still got a great hook to it. And it just. Uh, you really feel all of it on the song. You just do. And I think that it is. Uh, just a perfect song, nothing more, nothing less. What I will say is this, um, uh, this is um, as proof of my opinion that to support my argument that Martin should have produced the album to begin with, I greatly prefer the single version to the album version. Always have, it, the album's grown on me over time, but I've always preferred the single version. Yeah, I'll, I'll give... I, I, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. I will say kudos to this version of it keeping in the main parts, like you said. It wasn't yes. changed drastically. Um, I am with you. There is a tiny bit of a more taking you to church feeling on the single version to me. But yes, this is up there with very few songs in the fact that it is very, very, very darn close to a perfect song. This is pure, to me, this is pure example of McCartney as a genius songwriter, a genius composer. It is iconic, and the test of time is, is not even something to be laughed at. I mean, this one, I'd say you could play, and 99% of the people that heard it could tell you that it was Let It Be. Um and it's been done over, uh, you know, uh, acts all all throughout time after that have have done their versions and and heralded it the same way that we herald it as such a great song. Yeah, this is a modern day standard. This might as well be like part of the Great British Songbook or whatever. It For real. practically is at this point. And yeah, this was definitely a highlight of seeing McCartney live for me and everybody felt it in that stadium with 40,000 people experiencing let it be that was a beautiful moment yeah I can only imagine uh, and this is uh, Lady Madonna always hit me the same way um oh, also a classic yeah yeah but I mean this is McCartney uh, when he touches that piano and and I'm a bass player but when he touches that piano I listen <laughs> you know yeah. because it's Paul and that's what he does yeah, and he, he he brings it vocally for it every time, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, to hit that high register and it not sound contrived and just like a... Uh, it, it's so hard to put a lot of these feelings to words. Yeah. Uh, 
but it really it just it gets you if you've never heard the song go and listen have I, a nice a nice yeah, i would hope down. most there aren't too many of you who haven't heard it yeah this is this is when i grew up singing yeah <laughs> or trying to sing <laughs> but if you have heard it so we mentioned this song's been done over and over and over again but interestingly when paul wrote this song there was one singer in particular he really wanted to record it. None other than the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin, and he even sent her a demo of the song as a guide for her to record it. And uh, she did. Her version came out on her album, This Girl's In Love With You, which was released in January of 1970, two months before the single was released. So technically... The first release version was the Aretha Franklin version, which is pretty mind-blowing to um, consider. Obviously, she didn't release it as a single because that wouldn't have made a lot of sense, but that's an underrated album, by the way. I just want to put that out there. That has some great Aretha on it. Even has another Aretha Beatles cover of Eleanor Rigby. I always think of if the climate of radio was different and that would have got play, how that would have affected how we view this song um, as we know it throughout history. Uh, but such a, I'm so glad you touched on that. Such a great little factoid. Um, and it just shows, you know, that he, he's always, as a musician, just thinking across the board, man. Genius yeah. moves, genius moves. <laughs> yeah, and uh, unsurprisingly, it works beautifully as a, soul tune as well because oh. it was written that way of course it was written that way so kudos to all involved with let it be really not much else to say but now we're at the end of our side one with another of vaudeville's song we have a cover of a traditional folk tune called maggie may this was an early live favorite of the band and uh, again another interlude the end side one i think because it's more of an actual song i like it a bit more than dig it but it's also not essential but i don't think let it be would have been a perfect side ender i it would, think it definitely would have it definitely would have if you did a maggie may into let it be if you did that interlude between well, i guess you couldn't because dig it's there but yeah in a different spot let it be would have been the great flip it over let's go um this maggie may though being on this album is another one of those i mean this is an old quarryman joint that had been done over and over throughout the years with them and it's another in my opinion lennon in this darker place in himself looking back to and holding on to good times and 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 youth and I think that's why this even ends up on this album. I really do. I think that this was, whether they knew it or not, whoever, I guess, I guess Spectre, uh, in, in all honesty, you know, popping this on there really let us. This is more atmosphere. This is another atmospheric piece. And it has so much layered on it now knowing what Maggie May meant to them and especially Lennon. Yes. But yeah, don't end this side with this. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but either way, we have to flip it over and move on to side two, which begins with, I think, the best example of atmosphere we get on this album. I've got a feeling 
this is really a combination of two songs. So one is a McCartney song called I've Got a Feeling. And we also have it combined with a John Lennon tune called Everybody Had a Hard Year. And so uh, this is definitely the bluesiest song on the album. But um, yeah, it's two songs in one, but it's just, this is just a fun song to listen to. It's just a great rocker. I think this might be my favorite, just pure rocker on the album. They're just having a good time. You can hear that band camaraderie on it. And this is why the Beatles were a great band. Not take away the studio tricks and all that. This is a great band playing and doing what they do best. And when I played Rock Band, I had never heard this song before. I was pretty shocked um, to see the line, everybody had a wet dream. I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that on this. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was still, uh, I still love the song though, but sometimes I would get it confused with another one. I was like, which one has the wet dream line? But it, I thought it was maybe don't let me down, but it was this. <laughs> But, um, and the other thing I wanted to say, I think he might have added it to this tour for the first time specifically for the Got Back tour that I went to. Um, McCartney did this as the first song in his encore. And oh, that's glorious. And, uh, yep, Johnny Boy appeared on the screen to do his part from the rooftop. Yeah. And definite highlight for me. And it was just. You couldn't not feel everything, whether you were there or not, to see the virtual duet between Lennon and McCartney. You 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 had to feel it. It was awesome. So, and it lends itself to Peter Jackson. We got to give a kudos to him because it was during the production for that documentary that they really isolated uh, Lennon's part on that, and that's why it could be used on the the Got Back tour. Just so. Oh, Charlie, you saw a moment in history right there, man. I, I, I've i said it again. I kicked myself. I had three chances to see McCartney, and uh, I, don't, I kicked myself. That's all I have to say about that. As far as this song goes, it was this is this is Nostalgia Bomb City. This is the hardest song on the whole album for me to step back and do a critical take because this song is my shit. This song gets me up. It gets me going. It makes me feel as a musician. It screams rooftop. It screams Beatles. It screams, like you said, camaraderie. And I've always loved this song. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. Billy Preston, man. Billy Preston does. The, he almost becomes the star of this one for me uh, with, with his pieces in this. And I've always loved that, too. Um, this song, this is how you start a second side. Uh, at the very, very least, and uh, I, I can say I could sit here all night and just say I love it, I love it, I love it. But uh, this song, rock and roll composition with that blues feel, it, it sits off on that Fender Rhodes piano with Billy Preston just rocking and keeping everybody together. Such a such a great song, such a great song. Yeah. Um, if you haven't picked up on it already, Billy Preston is basically the fifth Beatle on this album. There was actually talk of making him a Beatle because of his work on this album. But Paul said, no, we have enough problems with four people. We don't need a fifth. And that sounds like something that we would, you know, just like it's almost contrived from what we've been talking about. But that was reality. Like, that's how tough it was with these brothers that Paul was like. I love Billy Preston, but ain't no way we're doing a five-man run on this. And that was, I think, Billy, because Billy Preston was playing with um, 
little Richard back in the day. Yeah. And that that's when he met the Beatles. I want to say that was like 62, but I might be, I might be messing up my, my numbers, but he was with them at least playing with them and, and being a, a friend slash session player for a, the longest time. Yeah. But he's most prominently featured on this album. Yep. So just wanted to put that out there. But uh, speaking of that old-timey brotherhood, we're going to go back to the oldest Beatles composition on the album, One After 909. This is an early Lennon-McCartney tune. Um, It was possibly written as early as 1957, and the latest it was written was 1960. So uh, Lennon said about this song, quote, That was something I wrote when I was about 17. I lived at 9 Newcastle Road. I was born on the 9th of October, the 9th month. It's just the number that follows me around. But numerologically, apparently I'm a six or a three or something, but it's all a part of nine. (laughs) Number nine. (laughs) So, and uh, Paul said that this was him and John trying to write a bluesy freight freight train song. And, um... They first recorded it in 1963, which uh, makes sense, but they weren't happy with the take they did of it, but they resurrected it for this uh, get back at the time it was known. And I mean, it's perfect for this concept If we're going to go back to the roots and playing. This is a perfect song to do it. And I mean, it works for what it is. This is just that great 50s style rock and roll. Like I can totally imagine Elvis rocking this one out too. And uh, yeah it's just a fun tune it doesn't take itself too seriously but for what it is it's perfect i think as a rock and roll song and i think even early on we really see just even at this early stage in that 50s rock and roll era they wrote this they already had their own voice and knew how to kill it on that level in a way that others just weren't doing And I think that's so important to point out. And it's really evident here. And it holds up. It it not only holds up, but for me, this is one that has just like a fine wine got better and better throughout the years listening to it. Um, You're not doing well as a brotherhood. You're not doing well as a band. You're having writer's block or, you know, just all these things we were going to. What's the best thing to do? Take it back all the way to what you loved when you were starting doing this, you know what I'm saying? And that I think is one of the reasons why it just sings so true. Like you said, Um, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but they didn't back then. And I think this is such a really great addition to a little bit of levity inside of it. it. It's still composed nice. It's a little loose, but I mean, it's a really cool take, something that we don't get to hear a lot from the boys. And again, I'll drive home that it was just a piece of levity, always a piece of levity from me on this album, especially more and more, like I say, like that fine wine, more and more as we know and 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 learn more about the process throughout this. But they were uh, they were taking it back to what they knew on this one. Yep. And how beautifully it worked for them. Yeah. But uh, we're going to change gears a bit for our penultimate track, a track um, 
Oh no, not penultimate. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm Sorry. getting ahead of myself. But <laughs> our track 10 still, the long and winding road. Um, this is the most controversial song on the album. Not because of its content. Um, the concept came from a visit to Paul McCartney's Scotland farm, where he ended up residing permanently after he was a Beatle. And uh he first recorded it actually during sessions for the White Album. He even offered it to Tom Jones under the condition that it be released as his next single, but contractually that didn't work out. So uh, Paul held on to it and bought it to the band in 1969, and they recorded it. In April of 1970, um, Phil Spector got a hold of this one, and because this is a ballad, Spector got a chance to use his trademark trademark wall of sound uh most prominently on this tune um and he added a full orchestra of 50 people and a 14 voice women's choir and um uh most accounts it sounds as though paul mccartney was not consulted about that and um when he found out McCartney did request for a lot of this to be removed, he requested that the Klein inspector, it must not have got, I, I think it didn't get through, it's been said. Some people say, oh, he knew. But either way, it went out with all these embellishments. And uh, McCartney did not get his wish. And even though it went out as it was at the end of 1970, when um they were looking to end the contracts. In his appeal to dissolve the Beatles' partnership, McCartney listed a few reasons, and one of them was the long and winding road. Because he was so unhappy with how it turned out, he felt it was overdone. He envisioned it as a much simpler ballad than uh, Mr. Spector had. But... This song ended up being the Beatles' final single in North America, and it topped the charts in both the U.S. and Canada. And uh, yeah, it was a huge hit. So um, a bit of a mixed blessing, I'm sure, for Paul circa 1970. He was he was hurt. He was hurt, to say the least. Uh, he's very vocal about that. Was the window there? Did he say no? Did he say nothing? That's for him specter and the boys to really ever know but he was hurt um hot tea take the only thing that i can get with paul on this other than the fact of it was my song and i wrote it like that and i really wish you wouldn't have changed it without letting me know he was quoted saying that he would never have a woman or a women's voice on a beatles album and it's not in a sexist way or anything like that. It's just the part of what they always did. I can maybe see where he's coming from on that. But really, this hot tea take is I I don't think this song is what it is without the cinematicness of it, without the orchestra, uh, without the way that Spectre ended up producing this. And I've, I've said it sitting here. The man is a genius. He's a genius songwriter. And I will never take anything away from that. But also as the band's final single, you know, a lot of this just comes from, from my heart and, and my feelings for this. But as the band's final single, the cinematicness of that ending piece, that long, that 
long and winding road of the Beatles. I think it just perfectly fit. And I I love the way this song is composed and I love the way it's produced. Uh, that's my hot tea take on this one. I mostly agree with you, actually. Um, I am very much team Paul in many ways, but I agree. This is not a simple ballad. This is a cinematic song. The title kind of is asking for it to be this big overture of a thing. Yes. I do find the choir to be overkill. Yeah. I don't need the choir. The orchestration is beautiful, actually, I think. And uh, this is a cinematic, beautiful song. What I will say is this. I don't think this is, I don't think this really sounds like a Beatles song. That's my biggest issue with it. I think it's a beautiful song. I don't think it sounds like a Beatles song. And that's my real, and that's why I wish Mr. Martin had produced this song because Martin could produce an orchestra. Martin did Hey Jude. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. could have brought it into that. And uh, that that's just my thought on it. And also, as we said earlier, yeah, the orchestra hated working with Spectre because his behavior was so erratic. Yeah. And yeah, players did leave throughout the session, but I mean, Spectre's a legend for a reason. He wasn't a good guy. He ended up going to jail for murder. So we all know that, I think, but he was a brilliant producer and we're not going to take that away from him. And I do think this is at in ways overkill, but this is that grand sweeping song. But yeah, I don't, and it, it worked for many people. It was a number one hit. Heard. I, I totally respect where you're coming from. I, I'll play devil's advocate, though, and, and just because I love talking to you about this. Um, and, and maybe this might not make it on the podcast. This might end up being like one of our bar conversations. But <laughs> what what for this isn't a Beatles song compared to Let It Be as far as their composition and their their structure the, I, don't you I, I feel like they're very similar in their in their grandiose feel but what for you really doesn't feel Beatles about this just um, j- just the cinematicness of it or it's not the cinematicness of it I think it might be the fact that this is other people shading my interpretation of it but as soon as this was released this was picked up on as an easy listening song. Heard. Many, many adult contemporary artists of this era took this song on. Even my beloved Cher did this song. She recorded it on her half-breed album. And Heard. No Women's Choir, faithful to the original. And I love my Cher, you know that, but she was not doing that Beatles style of music circa 1973. Heard. Like, this is... And I think because that, like, this is, this was performed on TV variety shows, not that other Beatles songs weren't, but this one in particular was chosen for that. And I think that I don't, the Beatles are not easy listening. I I respect that. Thank you for having an answer to that. I mean, that was out of left field, but I totally respect where you're coming from. I can see from, from knowing you and from, and, and just the way, you put that, I can see, see where you're coming from on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
the Beatles. They always they always take us all over the place. Now, I, I could be wrong, too. And I think uh, I shouldn't even say it, but I, I'm pretty sure Lennon was quoted later on being like, this could have been a wing song. We didn't need this. I mean, and... it probably could have been. Actually, he's yeah. he did. He did say he didn't like let it be, which I totally disagree with him on that. But he's not wrong. I mean, this isn't too. I can definitely see the evolution from this to live and let die. Let's just say that. There you go. There you go. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. I think live and let die is a better song, but I definitely see the genesis of it here. Let's, let's just say that. I like it. So yeah, there's that. Um, There is one cover I want to mention of it too. Not just the share one. Um, Aretha Franklin covered this one too, and it was even yep. called the best Beatles cover by Rolling Stone. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it is a contender and it features none other than Billy Preston on it. So beautiful. And it's a reinvention of it. And nobody could reinvent a song like Aretha. Nobody could. And beautifully done. It's on her Young, Gifted, and Black album. And uh, I just wanted to shout that out here because um, just what a beautiful performance of this song. That reinvents it. Indeed. But um, we're going to get a bit less grandiose now and uh, go on to our now our penultimate track, which is For You Blue, the second Harrison song. He uh, wrote this. He was really inspired by working with Bob Dylan and the band in late 1968. And uh, it was a simple love song for his wife. George Harrison said that it had all the elements of 12-bar blues, except that it was happy-go-lucky, which, yep, that's it. That's basically the song. It's a short tune. Um, I think it's a cute song. I do think it pales in comparison to some of the other stuff that Harrison was writing at the time, but I like it. This one is also not a favorite of everybody, but I've always enjoyed it. It has a place. It does what it needs to do and I think he I think he means it it's a cute breezy little tune and it was actually a double a side with the long and winding road so technically it was a number one hit too there you go it's a great song it's a a cute song like you said it's a it's a neat four bar blues almost anti-blues because of it it has so much happiness in it um I've always wondered why this was here on this album, though. Now, I'm sorry, not on this album, but why it was track four on the second side after Long and Winding Road. I feel like it lost, uh, you know, it lost a lot of itself for me there because you're coming off. We use the word grandiose. You're coming off this sweeping cinematic beast. And... This is another Harrison song that I dig, but I'll go back and and reiterate what you were saying. Is this, this isn't the best Harrison track that he's ever brought to you. And maybe it was just for the time and and, and something that they felt, or maybe he had strong-armed that at this point and said, hey, look, I'm putting this one on here if I'm coming back in. But it it loses a lot in this spot. It's a good one. I, I always say, well, you could just put it up a track, but after right after one after 909, I feel like it would have done the same thing. It almost would have just blended in to each other there. So you'd have to find another spot. Maybe, see, I almost just put it after I Me Mine. Uh, I mean, this, this is the struggle that John's went through, you know, over and over and over again, trying to put this album into 
into perspective until finally they said we're going to grab Spectre up and he didn't we didn't even say that but Johns didn't even get production credits on this at all because and that man did all the the legwork on it yeah you know actually um real hot tea take here the 2000 free re-release let it be naked um it does alter the track list and how it's arranged quite a bit it also removes the interludes and includes don't let me down which should have been on the album I don't think that's a hot tea take, but my hot tea take is that I actually think that sequency was better than what we got here. Yeah, 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 I, I, I agree with you. Plus, don't get me started on Don't Let Me Down because we could yes, do a it, whole podcast on Don't Let Me Down. It just should have <laughs> been. A, we're going to leave it as they made a very poor decision not including it on the album because it's a fucking banger. It fit this album. It did, too. It I did mean, too. it fit it so hard. It but... fit it more than for you, blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, no disrespect either way. Um, but now we are at the end of the album with "Get Back," which was the original title for this album and the original opening track. And uh, it's interesting. One of my very favorite, possibly my favorite part of the documentary was seeing Paul write this in the studio. And it originally was this anti-immigration satire song with completely different lyrics. And it changed into the tale of Jojo and Loretta Martin. But (laughs) it's just so cool to hear him come up with it on the spot like that. It just was very... um, Impressive. Some have even speculated this was about the state of the band. I don't think it was. I think JoJo and Loretta Martin are just fun little fictional characters, and Paul was just having a good old time. And either way, it doesn't matter because this is um another banger of a tune. Um, and here's the funny thing about this song. So um, before I ever heard this song, I'd heard the Britney Spears song Get Back, which is in other words not related to it, but I thought. Well, I like that song. I'll probably like this song, too. <laughs> and sure enough, this is one of my favorite Beatles songs. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and um, we talked about the importance of Billy Preston to this. Um, so this was actually released as a single in April 1969, just because a single needed to come out. It had been a while since Hey Jude, and it was time to put something out. And there was no album ready, but... This was released as a single with Don't Let Me Down as the B-side. And uh, Billy Preston was so important on this song that he became the only artist ever to be credited as featured on a Beatles single. Wow. With Get Back. So, and I mean, well-deserved. He's the man. That, That EP was the only way that I could listen to Don't Let Me Down back in the day. Like that was the only one that Not I could the, find back then. No, I mean, blue, blue. Was it there. is on the blue album. Yeah, 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 yeah. Blue was there, but that that was my "Don't Let Me Down." Was that was that EP right there? The forty-five. Or, that's crazy. Yeah, the forty-five. Yeah, that but, was it. But yeah, I, 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 I love that song so much. <laughs> yeah, but I am. I'm definitely glad they included it on the blue album. I'm sure that's part of why it sold like gangbusters because they included that and some of the other bangers that weren't on the albums, but. Yeah, most definitely. I, but, I digress. Um, <laughs> get anyway. back though. Yeah, get back that. Get back. Get back though has that fun you're talking about, and you're totally right on the Loretta 
those, those characters. I mean, just it's one of my favorite parts of the documentary. Watching Paul sit down uh, in my brain, he's cross-legged with his base sitting, but he might have just been sitting straight in the chair and just literally pull it out of the air. I mean, <laughs> he just starts going, and then here we go to one of the, another iconic piece for these guys, another one that will always be connected to them um, at first glance, and rightfully so. Another piece, again, of McCartney genius. Um, everybody, even with the sadness that I equate to Lennon at this point, everybody was really in a new level for themselves. Harrison, um, McCartney, Lennon in their own right. I, I don't talk enough about Ringo. Ringo, you were doing your thing, buddy. I love you, always will. <laughs> but, you know, everybody was was hitting this new plateau. And this was one of the, the songs that came out of that genius. I mean, Ringo didn't even get the single lead on this album. I think that is part of why we haven't spoken because he usually at least got a lead vocal on an album if not a songwriting credit, but not this time. Hot tea take, that might be why I like this album more. Oh, I mean... <laughs> no, no trips to the octopus's garden for you, I guess. Oof, that's, been a, that's been a debate for many years. For many, many years. Well, um, anyway, Ringo was doing this thing. There is... um. However, so yeah, this song, huge hit single, um, topped the charts across the world. It was number one in the U.S. for five weeks, actually. Um, there is one person I have to criticize for how it ended up on the album, and that is Mr. Spectre. He tinkered with it a bit for the worse. Like, the coda was kind of taken out. And yes. We get some live chattering, but the coda shouldn't have been removed, in my opinion. And also, um, this shouldn't have closed the album. I don't think. I think the long and winding road was the perfect closer. It's right there. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with the long and winding road, but I'll finish this thought and then I'll go back to the one you were just talking about because I love both of them. Throughout the iterations that Johns was getting together, we saw a lot of them play with get back open and then reprise. And I think that would have been a strong move. Yep. For You Blue not being there, long and winding road, there you go. We're really ending the album with just a get back reprise. Uh, afterwards, I think would have been a smarter move. I, I I definitely agree with you. I think this we could have benefited from this on the front half of the album. Um, yeah, that Spectre meddling on this one. I, I'm so glad because I almost forgot to talk about it. That's the atmosphere that we didn't necessarily need because it was it was him messing with like little snippets of here and there and putting it together and making it sound like it was, it was a, a live cut and it was, it was just not needed to take that coda out. Um, and, and, and we're not, I'm not even going to say I'm nitpicking on that point to take that coda yeah. out, I think was a terrible mistake. Um, even though this version is, is great on its own. It's just, there's, there's things you don't do. Phil crazy Phil. No, I mean, and even not talking about quality, this was already a hit single as it was. Agreed, Why would you agreed. change anything? There was no need for a change to it in any way. And uh, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's still Get Back. It's a strong enough song that really tinkering can't take much away from it. But it's like, yeah, it's here's how I would say it. the album version's a nine out of 10. The single version's a 10 out of 10. Agreed. Agreed. That's basically what, what I'm coming from here. So there we have it. Um, We have Let It Be, the, the album as it was released in 1970. A, a divisive album to many, but still plenty to discuss because it is the Beatles, the Fab Four themselves. Um, after all this, what grade do you give the album? Oof, uh, this was an, uh, another one. I, I know I say this a bunch, but this is just, it's nostalgia bomb for me. Um, critically listening to this album and getting down and really doing the nitty gritty work on where they were, what was happening, and and living inside this album for the last week, there's still not a lot of places that I can find very many missteps um, throughout the album. It's not one of the cases for me where any of the missteps um, even cast the tiniest bit of shadow on the rest of the album. Uh, This has so many tracks that for me, have stood the test of time. And we even said one of them was almost a perfect song or a perfect song. Um, For me, Beatles, Let It Be is an A minus. Same exact grade for me. Um, (laughs) Because, and overall, I just love this concept. I love what they did here. And they showed like, hey, we can make a rock album. And I don't, I'll say this, this, I know realistically this is not, their best album but of the albums because i just have so much fun listening to a lot of these songs because they just it's a simple rock kind of thing this is one i go back to a lot i go back to this more than sergeant peppers and the white album actually that's unpopular opinion i'm sure but i wouldn't say unpopular i i i like moved my head to the side only because I tend to go with a little bit more psychedelic Beatles, but I always love this. I'm with you. I, this is in there. This stays in yeah. there, you know? Yeah. I like that they decided not to be as psychedelic for a bit. I Not that I have anything against psychedelic Beatles, but I liked that they went back to basics because that has a place too. And it's a big place. And uh, agreed. just not enough can be said about that perfect, pop song construction and these guys did that without all the embellishment and they showed it again here and in an evolved way too this is evolved from i want to hold your hand and she loves you we this is them doing this kind of music as the evolved young gentlemen they were and that's why it's one i go back to a lot the only one i go back to more than this is abbey road heard that so what's, what's your favorite song on this album I I said it, it's the song that I said was a perfect song, the title track. It's my favorite Beatles song, period. I hear you. I Though hear I've you. got a feeling's a close second, not gonna lie, because what a banger. Yeah, man. That I've got a feeling is my uh is my honorable mention, my runner up across the universe on this one for me, just because it's I'll just give you guys the nostalgia bomb on that one. There's no way around it. I that song has embedded itself so much in my life uh so many different times that that one just 
it gets me every time. There was tears, there was smiles, there was all types of feelings throughout this week. So I'm I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad we got to do the boys, the Fab Four together. Yes, so much. And it's also just nice to go back and do a pre-MTV album because I feel like we haven't gotten to do a lot of those in a while. They're not always admittedly quite as popular with the listeners, but um, I, I really hope that everybody listening enjoyed this one. Please let us know if you did and if you want us to do more along these lines, because honestly, uh, there's so much to dive into with just the Beatles and their and their peripheries, frankly. There's just so much else to dive into. And please let us know if you want to hear more of that, because I think we're, I can speak for both of us in saying that we are on board to do anything along these lines again, because this was just such a great album to discuss. Yeah, man. I could talk about the Beatles all day. All yeah. day long. So, yeah. And they're not even my number one favorite band, but so can I. Heard that. Because they're the fucking Beatles. Pardon my <laughs> French. It's the fucking Beatles. But uh, we, we will be moving on from it. For um, Oh, that's right. All right. Where are we going? So, yeah, this is to end out our doll month. Uh, it kind of, it goes without saying there's a lot of Beatles toys out there. Not even necessarily just for this album. But, I mean, there really isn't much else to say about that might need to be a separate episode frankly yeah no we got so excited uh you know there's so many toys between the start to to now i mean just the the figures from the rooftop alone uh, we could that is another podcast you know but yeah so yeah. many toys yes but um that that was our friend this month and uh, we um <laughs> Gave you a poll. We gave you folks a poll of um, some artists who have toys, all of who appeared on this show in our first year, I guess you could say. We've discussed them all before. And uh, we wanted you to decide which one you wanted to hear about again. So the options were Michael Jackson's Thriller, Madonna's I'm Breathless, Britney Spears is in the zone and Lady Gaga's born this way. And um, we polled you all. It was close. It was very close because I expected it to be. These are all um, artists with pretty rapid and large fan bases, but we do have a winner and it is Lady Gaga's born this way. There you go. Gaga getting it. Um, but uh, that'll also be a really fun one to discuss. And um one that's been in the zeitgeist again lately, thanks to Wednesday. So Heard. because of that, we're excited to do that as well. But in the meantime, please follow us wherever you're listening to us, uh, whether that be Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts. We're on all of those. iHeartRadio, too. Can't forget them. And also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast and on Twitter at Turntables Tea where we'll be promoting our episodes and posting all kinds of fun stuff to get into with that. And um, yeah, we want to hear from you too. Please let us know any feedback you have for us, especially about this episode. And if you want to hear more along these lines, that's in, your feedback is valuable to us all. But um, thank you for listening and put your calls up for next week, monsters. Peace. <laughs>